0: Well, church, this morning, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. Genesis 2-2. And as you're doing so, I'd like to make a simple statement which you may choose to agree with or disagree with. Now, if you disagree, simply make your sentiments known by standing. Keep looking for Genesis 2-2, but go ahead and do so while you stand. The rest, if you agree with this statement... Remain in your seats, also finding Genesis 2-2, but from the comfort or discomfort of your pew. So, fair, stand or sit. Here's a statement. Life is busy. Life is busy. If you agree, simply stay in your seats. If you disagree, go ahead and rise. And I'll give you a moment to think it over. Don't, don't take too long. Don't pull a muscle As you jump to your feet, but I would hope all of you have found Genesis 2. And it would seem, from the absence of those on their feet, that you agree with the statement. You agree. And, And just so that you'll know, I agree as well. The only reason I'm standing is because I'm preaching. But I agree. I agree with all of you who are presently seated by choice. Life is busy so busy our culture has created a career called a life coach where as the title describes the individual in this career simply helps coach people through life making sense of the craziness and trying to coordinate the busyness. Life is busy and Trevin Wax He's an editor for the Gospel Project, so those of you who are in Sunday school on Sunday mornings, you might recognize this name, but Trevin Wax calls this reality of life's busyness a disease. Only the strange thing is about this sickness, it's one we all want to catch. We are busy, and we're workaholics, and we like it that way, Wax says. Sitting still, Being quiet, as our children evidenced earlier, thinking, not doing, these are activities that send shivers up most spines. We'd rather be moving, talking, acting, working, and sadly, such busyness wears us down. Just leaves us perpetually exhausted, but we're too scared to slow down, aren't we? We're too worried of what might happen if we stop, and that if we stop, we might realize the world continues to turn without us, and if so, we'd realize we really aren't all that necessary to what life is all about. Now, there's probably a whole host of other reasons that we could give individually for our own keeping busy, but the truth is, we do, each and every one, despite our busyness, we desire rest don't we? And the good news that's declared in God's word is that this is exactly what he promised. And So I want us to look at this promise together now and to see how it's woven into the very fabric of creation evidenced by God's provision based upon his person. So Genesis 2-2 reads, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And may God bless the public reading of his word. So having completed his creation of everything, from nothing, Moses documents or records that God rested. And not only did he take a break after six days of work, which I imagine we can all relate to this morning, but God blessed the day on which he rested and made it holy. And then that's the last, or more accurately, that's the only mention of this provision until we arrive in Exodus chapter 20 in Moses' well documented account of the Ten Commandments, where in chapter 8, or verse 8 rather, of chapter 20, God declared, Remember the Sabbath, speaking to Moses, by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates, your foreigner. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you were with us, you might recall several weeks ago when I explained how Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch was key for discerning authorial intent, which enables us to discern the story that's being written, the story, the bigger story than just that which is recorded in Genesis. So we're talking about the meta-narrative of Scripture. Well, here's an example, here's an instance in which this is clear. So let me show you both how and why by first considering God's blessing and hallowing of the seventh day. God's blessing and hallowing the seventh day. Here, in Genesis 2 and verse 2, we have admittedly the familiar, but it's nonetheless a strange account of God's blessing and making holy this day on which he rested. And I say it's familiar because I would imagine most all of us have heard this story before. And if not, we're at least familiar with the concept of a week that lasts seven days, in which we work, in most of our cases, five days, some six, even some who work six and even seven days, but all of our lives revolve around this reality, don't they? Where there's one day, for most it's a Sunday, where there's one day on which we do things differently. Now, that different doesn't mean or have to be tied to religious activity and in my opinion unfortunately for many more and more at least in our nation it isn't but we still break from routine on this day we cut our grass on saturday we break we rest from that type of labor on a sunday we get up on a saturday morning we go running and we ride our bikes but on sunday we rest we sleep in and so regardless of reasoning most people's life rhythm, in my opinion, in our Western culture, beats a steady six count with a break on seven. And I believe that this is exactly because of what God modeled in creation. He he worked for six days, speaking into being all that is before completing His work by personally fashioning people, a man and a woman, made in His image and sharing His purpose and then God rested. And this is what to many, seems strange. Why did God need to rest? Did he need to rest? And in his rest, what did he rest from? I mean, certainly he wasn't sustaining all things, as the writer of Hebrews makes clear that the Son does, by his powerful word, Hebrews 1, 3, because if he had rested from all of that, (laughs) then all that is would have ceased to be. So what then did God rest from, and why? And I believe the answer to the what is clearly his creating. At the close of day six, he rested. So it leaves us to conclude, along with Albert Einstein, and his first law of thermodynamics, that a fixed quantity of energy and matter exists in the universe. In other words, new is not ongoing. Creation has revealed that to us from the very beginning. All that has been made has been made. So there's the what, but what about the why? And this is where we begin to see that what Moses I believe, has given us here in Genesis 2, 2 and 3, it isn't an isolated incident tied to the world's beginning. Rather, it is a paradigm revealing God's eternal purpose. It's a paradigm that reveals God's eternal purpose. And so let me explain. I believe that God's blessing and making holy the seventh day was his dedication of one day in every seven to be a time of blessing for his people. Because, and this is what we'll see as we get a little further in our journey through Genesis, whenever God blessed something, if it was a, uh, for example, when he blessed the journey or he blessed a person in the scripture, in the stories, that person was blessed and he became rich with blessings. When God blessed the land, the land became rich with blessings. And so when God blessed the seventh day, it, the day, became rich. With blessings, it became rich with blessings, and I'll explain what I believe the blessings to be in a moment. But first, this day was blessed, but not only blessed; it was also made holy, or hallowed. The NASB translation, if you have that, reads sanctified. In essence, in essence, and in the words of one pastor theologian, this day, in being hallowed, this day was set aside for a special focus on what is holy, namely. God and his holy works. So if we go back then to what is this rich blessing then that marks this holy seventh day, I believe that rich blessing is God himself. For he alone is ultimate. He is, as as he told Abram in chapter 15 and verse 1, he is our shield and our very great reward. He's the reward. God is. And therefore on this hallowed seventh day, God was establishing a routine for his highest creature, the one that's made in his image. He was establishing this routine in which they, like he, would stop and step back, if you will. Step back to, to commemorate with him the fact that he's the creator. He's the one who made it all. He's the fountain of all blessing. Life lived in relationship with him is what he purposed From the very beginning. From the very beginning. Because you remember when all of this takes place here in the story we're studying? This is in Genesis chapter what? 2. So this is prior to the fall, which happens in chapter 3. Meaning this design, I believe, reflects God's ultimate purpose for people. However, as we noted just a few moments ago, it isn't until Exodus 20, right? following Israel's sojourn in Egypt, that God gives Moses a commandment to make the seventh day a Sabbath. So having lived as slaves and made to labor seven days a week, God revealed in Exodus to his people that his ultimate purpose was always rest in him. Where this rest doesn't reflect the absence of work, but the heavenly union of the two. For in the garden, as we saw last week, if you were with us, God gave Adam and Eve the task of ruling over or having dominion over creation. Later on, and we'll see this next week, you get to chapter 2, verse 15, we'll read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it or take care of it. Now, there's different ways in which those words work and care can be translated, but the point is, spoiler alert, for all of you who had hopes of hitting eternity and having wings and sitting on clouds and playing trumpets and doing nothing but, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. What will, I believe, is a return to the Edenic state we have described for us here in chapter two, where labor, work, is enjoyable, where work is worship, and where it's coupled with rest in perfect fellowship with God. And for as I would hope, this resonates this morning with all of us. This promise of rest and escape from life's busyness coupled with the expectation of work that is finally fulfilling and worshipful. Because I know a great many folks, men and women in our church, they can't stand to sit around and waste their days doing nothing. Now whether work breaks you a sweat or or it's just work of your mind, but to be idle or slothful is just unpalatable. Because God created us to Worship in our labor for his glory while resting in perfect fellowship with him. And this is God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose because as we see this, it's a point that's only reinforced, in my opinion, by the fact that of all the days in creation, only day seven lacks the limiting parameters of morning and evening. Which I think suggests that the very good that we saw concluded day six, the very good, was what God intended for forever. God wanted that concluding rest to last forever. But sadly, as we just said, Genesis 3 makes clear, sin marred this end for a time. Sin marred it for a time such that right now, work is not fully rewarding. It's no longer entirely enjoyable. And as you look around you, it's not for everyone. And God knew this. God knew this, which is why he gave his people a sign. This is why God gave his people a Sabbath. So the Sabbath is God's sign for his people, meaning this day, this Sabbath rest was given to distinguish God's people from all others. It wasn't a provision for all people. God gave it specifically to his chosen people in order to distinguish them from all others as evidenced by the Sabbath's inclusion, as we just said, with the other Ten Commandments, or as a commandment, which was intended to set God's people apart from all the nations of the earth. And Moses records God's words to this effect in Exodus 19, where he wrote, Now, if you obey me fully, you keep my covenant, the Ten Commandment was representative of, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Sabbath was uniquely given to Israel to distinguish them from all the other peoples of the land into which God was leading them. It's a fact that's further attested to when you consider that prior to Exodus, there's no mention in Scripture of Sabbath. In fact, there's no reference to God's rest in relation to any of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And Nehemiah only endorses the idea of God gifting his people Sabbath when in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13, he writes how God came down on Mount Sinai speaking to the Israelites that he was leading. You spoke to them, that's God speaking to Israel. From heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just, right, and decrees and commands that are good, Nehemiah said. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through Moses. Incredible that of all the things that Nehemiah could have listed regarding God's covenant commands to his people, the one he mentions explicitly is Sabbath. So obviously it's a bigger deal than just taking a break, right, from work. A fact that's only underlined by the severity given in Scripture of the punishments inflicted on those who broke the Sabbath. Death. Which is all the more telling when you note that of all the nations condemned in Scripture, so all the non-Israelites, all the pagan peoples into the land that God was identifying his people from, separating them, distinguishing them from, when all the nations in Scripture are condemned for all types, all manner of moral transgressions, they are never condemned for Sabbath breaking. But Israel is. So clearly God gives the Sabbath to his people. And Emmanuel, I can't overemphasize In light of this point, how important it is that we, God's people, Christ's church, keep the Sabbath. And not as a legalistic activity in which we as the Pharisees before us try to regulate our day in order to hopefully through our obedience somehow obligate God to bless us with rest. No, not at all. And and we'll see in a moment just how flawed such reasoning is. Rather, we must set aside time weekly. We step away from the activities that constitute the work by which we provide for ourselves. And we gather with God's people to savor Him, who is the source of all good things, to relish in the God who alone is God and provides us with the bread of life and living water. Why? Because this is a sign that we're His. And so the Sabbath is a sign for God's people because the Sabbath reminds us of His rest. The Sabbath is a reminder of God's rest. As we noted there in Exodus 20, the Sabbath was given to Israel as a day to remember God's rest. To remember God's rest. Having just found freedom from captivity in in an enslaving seven-day work week, God gave His people strict orders to remember His purpose, ultimate purpose, for them of rest. And it's rest in relationship with Him. How? How do they remember this? By resting themselves, and that very word "Sabbath" means to, to cease or si- to, uh, cease or desist, not susist, but to desist. So remember the Sabbath day. So it means don't forget to stop, take a break. All the normal activities that you normally have cease on day seven. Don't forget to take a day off, and in so doing, keep it holy. Keep it holy, which means to set it aside from all these other days and and not in a random manner of your choosing, but as qualified to the Lord, to the Lord. And so God wasn't giving Israel in this command the freedom to to remember the Sabbath however they felt led. One might say, I'm going to go to the beach today, take my Sabbath. Another might head to the mountains or another might say today, I'm going to go to the mall and take my rest. No, no. They were to keep this day holy as to the Lord, meaning meaning that their rest was to be God-centered rest, where their attention was to be directed to the Lord in ways more concentrated than normal. It wasn't the only day on which they were to fix their minds on Him, but on this day they were to be more intentional about it. And this was to happen every seven days. Now, God didn't call for Israel to remember his rest once a month, annually, or even as necessary. It was to follow the pattern that he had established in creation. And, and let me just point out that this command doesn't come with a concept of weeks here. It, it, there's no concept of weeks weeks mentioned. And so the Sabbath isn't specifically the last day of the week, according to the scripture, or even the first day of the week. The command is simply to work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. Every seventh day should be a Sabbath. And this command is comprehensive. So that you can't, like John Piper likes to say, so you can't fudge. You can't cheat. Israel wasn't able to set a carrot before their donkey and set the donkey to work before the sun came up so that work got done. It just wasn't by them. And such an effort to get around the rest reveals that the point's been missed. Where the point is, or, or the reminder is, as I've said, it's a reminder of God's rest. It's it's His setting back, so to speak, and taking in the glory of all that He made and which we see was described as very good. So church, as we consider the words of our text taken here from Genesis 2, I believe that what we see is God establishing a paradigm for His people So proclaiming then to all who would read his word, this promise of lasting rest, lasting rest, where this rest, as as we said, it isn't a rest from work such that one day when Christ returns, we're going to cease to labor and we'll spend the rest of eternity simply sitting around in a state of meditative bliss. No, this is a promise that one day we will labor beside our Lord in a state of perfect peace in which the work that we do is defined not by the curses that we see given in chapter 3 where the ground will produce thorns and thistles making our toil painful, our work wearisome, but it will display the divine peace to which Christ called his followers for his burden is light and his yoke is easy. So do you know the rest of which we're being reminded here by the Sabbath. Do, do you do you view this day as given, as one of freedom that brings joy in the remembrance of what has been promised, or is this a day of frustration caused by limitation, where you you really rather be at home working on your yard? on other house projects, the many that your wife has for you that you couldn't get to yesterday because the weekends are only so long. And besides, you know, Pastor, if I'm honest, I really don't get that much out of sitting with other people that I don't know all that well and listening to you, no, no offense, you know, pontificate while singing songs. I was never into karaoke anyways. I mean, does your, does your Sabbath get you excited about the rest it reminds us is coming? That's eternal rest in the presence of the Lord. And friends, I I pray that every day you wake up looking forward excitement and in joyful anticipation of the next Sabbath, where we bring our minds back to what will one day be forever and always. And if so, or if you don't, and if you're really not all that excited by the opportunity to celebrate the Sabbath with your church, then then I pray in the moments that follow that God's grace would open your eyes to see how this isn't only a sign. God's, God's gift of Sabbath wasn't only a sign for his people reminding them of his rest, but it also served as God's reminder of his rescue or release. His rescue or his release. If Exodus 20, per our author Moses, reveals the Sabbath's purpose to remind us of God's rest, then Deuteronomy in chapter 5 ties it to God's release. Deuteronomy, chapter 5, in verse 12, and here's why. Moses gives us there a second listing of the Ten Commandments, much like we find in Exodus chapter 20. Only here, in this second listing, the Sabbath's observance is urged not because of God's rest, but rather, when you get to verse 15, Deuteronomy five fifteen, because, Moses writes, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. In other words, the focus of the Sabbath is on God, not only as the source of creation, but also as the source of salvation. It's a salvation that we can't work for ourselves, but which was promised and pointed towards in our text for this morning, Genesis 2. And friends, now, now is where that scripture that we heard Mary, that she read earlier, This is where it gets important. In Matthew, we're talking about this big story. This isn't just an isolated book without connection to the rest of the story of Scripture, the meta-narrative. This is where it gets exciting. Because in Matthew 12, Jesus and his disciples, as we heard, were traveling through these grain fields on the Sabbath. As they do, a few of his followers, you know the story, plucked the standing grain, which wasn't illegal, but it was considered labor by those who were watching, and in the moment they did, those hawks were like, ah, gotcha, gotcha you. Got you doing something unlawful. But then, Jesus did something incredible. First, he directed the Pharisees to that story of David, the quintessential king, kind of a fore, foretelling of the messianic king. He points them to David, who ate the bread of presence that would have been forbidden to all but the priests, and says, hey, he wasn't guilty. And then he points these Pharisees to the priests themselves who work in the temple every Sabbath and also aren't considered guilty of breaking the day. And then lastly, he draws their attention to the temple, the temple itself, where he then declares, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. And then he drops this bomb, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord. And then in just a few verses later in chapter verse forty one rather, we didn't read these, but in verse forty one, Jesus adds something super significant. He says that now one greater than Jonah is here, before he concludes the chapter, revealing in verse 42, but now one greater than Solomon has arrived. And in each of these statements, Matthew reveals how Jesus, as greater than the priests, given by the reference to the temple, as greater than the prophets, per the Jonah comparison and greater than all the kings, per the Solomon note, how Jesus, as greater than all of these, is the Messiah. He recognized it of himself, and as such, as he said, he isn't subject to the Sabbath, because he's Lord over it. In fact, he's the one to whom it points. He's the rest. He's the rest of which we're reminded and, and I want us to see this together. He's the one that's being pointed forwards to here in Genesis 2 and verse 2 and 3. And so I want you to flip over, if you will, for just a moment and find Matthew 11, verse 28. Find Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. So words that precede chapter 12, obviously. So point being, these are in the background. These are humming along in the background of all that we heard Mary read for us. And that I just summarized. These words are humming in the background out of chapter 11, and they're informing all that we've just noted, namely Christ being superior to the priests, prophets, and kings. He's the Messiah. As such, he is God's Sabbath. So let's look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, where Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find, what? Rest. And what kind of a rest? For your souls. So this isn't a brief once a week rest. This is the promise of eternal rest. This is Sabbath rest. This is that which God was directing his people to remember and which was to define them, because in the Old Testament it all pointed forward to Messiah. Messiah. Jesus said, Take my yoke, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, do you hear the clear contrast that Jesus was giving between labor and, and rest? He promises people who come to him rest, even rest to their souls, where, as I said, this rest isn't temporary. It's not tied to weekly gatherings. This rest is eternal, and it isn't defined, as we've already said, that that which was promised. It isn't defined by the absence of work. Rather, it's marked by Jesus' yoke and his burden, which are easy and light. So do do you know this rest that Christ promises? This morning, and friends, you can. You can if you do as Jesus invited and you come to him. You bring your burdens. You come fatigued. You just come. You don't have to come perfect, well-rested, prepared. Because honestly, not a one of us can. And it's our adversary's lie that we have to wait until we are to respond to Christ's invitation. Would you respond this morning by recognizing that what Christ offers is what your heart desperately longs for? Peace? Peace, regardless of life circumstance? whether you're in good health or not, successful financial circumstances or not, that comes because of what Christ has done in changing us from dead and broken people to life in relationship with Him. And as a culture that is marked by busyness, we, I think in many ways, mirror the mindset that Israel would have had as they escaped Egypt. Because remember, Israel had spent some 400 years in captivity where they would have grown accustomed to to view life and a life's worth by the amount of bricks that an individual could have provided. If you couldn't produce, then you would have been punished by the slave masters. If you couldn't produce, then, then you were worthless to the team. Output equated to value. And that's not a perspective far off of that of our culture today, where we hear advocates for euthanizing people because they've gotten too old. When you're no longer able to be a productive member of society, productive, well, now's the time to let them die with dignity. Have you heard that phrase? While they're still in possession of their faculties, before they get too far down that road or path of not being able to produce any longer for society, they become a drain rather than a contributor. And so therefore, value is gone. The church... Our value as human beings isn't tied to our work, or productivity as we've seen. Who we are is men and women. We're image bearers with our value most fully displayed as God came as one of us to redeem us while we were still sinners. Meaning He didn't come to save us because of any inerrant value that we possessed, but because He is love. And He created us to reflect His glory, which we do Only as He graciously saves us by grace through faith in Him. And it's at that point we come to know His rest. And that's not a rest from work so we no longer have a job. But it's rest from the work of trying to please God, right? Trying to find that which we desperately desire. The rest from the effort of trying to fulfill God's law. Be good enough so hopefully when we get to the end of the day we'll get the benefit of a, of a passing grade and be allowed into eternal rest, whatever that means. Guys, we could never do that. And those who are trying know the reality of its futility. And so churches, we consider our weekly gatherings as we land the plane, so to speak. I want to appropriate once more some things that Trevan Wax Urges the church to remember. He says three things, and I like us to consider these three things every time we look to our times together. He says, first, remember that God created this world and he rested. Second, remember that God has begun his work of new creation, which points us to his coming consummation. So he has begun this new creation. And then third, Remember that we rest now, always, in Christ's work on the cross for our salvation. Whereby remembering isn't encouraged simply a passive thinking about, mulling over in your mind, but rather this is more an initiator for actions. Kind of like when we men remember our wives' birthdays, hopefully prior to rather than after, or when we remember our anniversary That remembering spurs us on to excited activity of celebrating the one that we're remembering. So too in this case. This remembering of these three things, of God's creation and rest, of God's beginning of this new work, this new creation that will one day find consummation, and that Christ's work is what we rest in for our salvation. This ought to lead us to an active celebration, a worshiping of God. We gather to remember all that He's done for us in Christ Jesus. So we'll naturally worship Him, praising Him for His provision of the gospel. Because without it, we'd be nothing. And all that we possess in the moment, little more than temporal conveniences without any eternal significance. But because of Christ and His sacrifice, we can look with hope to the future with the knowledge that God, great, God's gracious provision of rest in the now is only going to be magnified into eternity. I pray that everybody here this morning knows this rest and that we as a church will make every Sabbath day, we'll set it apart to exclusively celebrate our God's rest. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, this morning we, we thank you that you promise rest. Lord, for some of us at me, it may seem more appealing than others in this moment, but Father, it's something that each and every one of our hearts desires. Father, our souls long for rest, whether our bodies acknowledge it or not. And Lord, we may distract that need, put it off for a season, but it runs in the background because it's what we have been made to need rest in you. And we give you praise that this is not something that we can accomplish. We can't work rest. We can't come to know you and obligate you to provide us this. Father, for if that were possible, then some would be advantaged over others. But God, what you have done, you've provided graciously, as your word makes clear, through relationship with Jesus. Father, that relationship is offered to all who will confess their sin, repent, and believe. And God, we extend that offer every time we open your word as we hear your gospel proclaimed. Lord, and you leave it to us to respond as you work in us. We pray, Father, this morning that there are any that desire to know this rest and have this morning heard of this opportunity. Lord, that we might have conversations about that in the time that follows. But God, we thank you as your church that we, when we gather, we come and are reminded of the rest that will be and of the reality of it in the present. But we're also reminded of your rescuing of us out of slavery, into life. Father, we pray that you would just fill our hearts with a hunger of being with your church that we might be reminded of these things. For when we get apart from this, God, that, that burning and excitement dwindles. For not a one of us was designed to live in isolation from the other. We are designed for community, your people, the church. Father, we thank you for giving us all of these resources and making them available to us by your grace and through your word and your spirit's application of it. Lord, We, we, we praise you for the rest, which is ours, who is Jesus. And We thank you for him.